You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to the RSA. My name is Benedict Dellert. I'm the Associate Director of Economics here at the RSA. Um, I'm delighted to welcome our fantastic guest speaker today. Kate Rayworth is a Senior Research Associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute, where she teaches on the Masters in Environmental Change and Management. Prior to that, she was a Senior Researcher at Oxfam and led the organisation's research on the conceptual framework of planetary and social boundaries, addressing human rights and accountability in climate change adaptation, and also protecting labour rights in global supply chains. The Guardian has named her as one of the top ten tweeters on economic transformation, and a progressive vision of economics is one that chimes very well with that of the RSAs. Today she'll be giving us an overview of her recent book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. So without any further ado, please do give a big hand uh, to Kate Raworth. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. This is the first public talk I'm giving about my book, so I'm delighted to share these ideas here first with you. So everybody's saying it. We need a new narrative about the economy, a story of an economy that works for everyone. And I agree. But let's not forget one thing. Many of the world's most enduring stories are the ones told with pictures, from the ones from our favourites of childhood to the stories of creation, to the stories we tell ourselves about how the world works. Pictures are powerful, not just because they're memorable, but because they can be paradigm-changing. Nicholas Copernicus certainly knew this. He spent his life looking at the motion of the planets, and he knew that Ptolemy's drawing, with Earth at the centre of the universe, had got it all wrong. But he waited until he was on his deathbed before he dared to publish his own, which put the sun not Earth at the centre of the universe, because he knew that in his picture he risked threatening papal power, upending church doctrine and questioning man's place in the universe. It's extraordinary what havoc a few concentric circles can unleash. So think of the diagrams in economics, the pictures that tell us so much of the questions that we might ask, but they wordlessly whisper to us the fundamental questions of economics, such as, what the economy is and what it's for, how it works and who we are in it. And the thing about pictures is that they go into our minds and they linger long after the words and equations have faded. And that's a problem because today's citizens and policymakers of 2050 are in university right now, but they're being taught economics from the textbooks of 1950 based on the theories of 1850. Given the challenges of the 21st century, from climate change to extreme inequality to repeated financial crisis, this is shaping up to be a disaster. Let's take a tour of that out-of-date mindset, starting with the man who knew how to draw economics, Paul Samuelson, who was teaching at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the 1940s, and he wrote the world's best-selling economics textbook. I don't care who writes a nation's laws or crafts its advanced treaties, so long as I can write its economics textbooks, he said. And then he added, the first lick is the privileged one, impinging on the beginner's tabula rasa at its most impressionable state. 
So whether you've studied economics or not, watch out. Paul Samuelson thinks your mind is a blank slate, and he wants to lick it. In fact, he probably already has. In the 1940s, Samuelson sat down to draw a diagram of the economy, and since he was teaching engineering students, he made it look a bit like a radiator, with money and goods flowing round and round like water through the pipes. Now, that diagram has evolved a bit over time. Today, we know it as the circular flow of income, and it's got a few things added. But at the heart of it, we've got the market in which wages are exchanged for income, and income is exchanged for goods and services. And then there's three extra pipes, with income being siphoned off and injected back in, as savings and investment via banks, as taxes and spending via governments, and as imports and exports via international trade. What this diagram essentially tells us is that what the economy is, is what gets monetized. And like a radiator, it's a self-contained system. No mention of the living world on which all of this depends. No mention of the daily work of parents and carers raising that labor to make it fit for work. No mention of the extraordinary sharing that goes on in communities, whether local or global, in which goods and services are created for free. These blank spaces have come back to haunt us. If that's what the economy is, according to the 20th century economic story, what about who we are in it? Well, Adam Smith sketched the first economic portrait of humanity, and he drew a nuanced one because he recognized both the role of our self-interest in making markets work, but also the role of our interest in others for making society work, visible in our sense of public spirit, justice, and generosity. But that nuance got in the way of modeling. And so subsequent economists like John Stuart Mill stripped it back and pared it down to that narrow trait of self-interest. So the portrait we now have is of rational economic man. He's never actually drawn in the textbooks, but if he were, he'd have to be depicted standing alone, money in his hand, ego in his heart, a calculator in his head, and nature at his feet. And the problem with him is not just that it's narrowly absurd, it's what looking at him does to us. Because in being told that we are like him, we actually become more like that. Research across the world has shown in, in uh, universities from America to Israel that the more that economic students study rational economic man, the more they become motivated by self-interest. This model of man has actually become a model for man. And that's a problem for all of us because we are going to soon be more than 10 billion in the world. And if we go at this future continuing to imagine, conduct, and justify ourselves as rational economic man, we have very little chance of thriving together in the 21st century. What of how the economy works? In the 1870s, a small, determined group of economists wanted to make economics as reputable as physics. Awed by Newton's insights into the physics of uh, the laws of motion. Economists like William Stanley Jevons intentionally drew their economics diagrams in the style of Newton and from them created the diagram that's known by every economic student of the first that you learn, supply and demand. And they spoke of the market forces and the market mechanisms creating market equilibrium. As anyone who saw the 2008 financial crash knows, Talking about markets as if they were equilibrium turns out not to be a very good metaphor after all. But more than that, the really perni pernicious effects of pursuing Newton 
was the desire to find those laws of economic motion. In, in the 1950s, Simon Kuznets thought he'd found one about inequality. He believed he found a law of motion that said, when it comes to inequality, it has to get worse before it can get better, and more growth will make it better. In the 1990s, Gene Grossman and Alan Kruger thought they'd found another one about the law of pollution in society. Guess what? It has to get worse before it can get better, and more growth will make it better. Like a well-trained child, economic growth will apparently clean up after itself. But what we've learned in the last decade, if one thing, is that these economic laws of motion do not exist. Income inequality and environmental degradation are not driven by some spurious law. They're the result of policy choices, and they can be changed. And this brings us to growth, because one of the side effects of this fake physics was that it was a fantastic case for the reason to pursue endless GDP growth. GDP was invented by Simon Kuznets in the 1930s, and despite his warnings from the beginning, it was quickly seen as a panacea for all economic woes. And it soon morphed from being something desired into a goal in itself that was expected, demanded, and depended upon by the economy. In 1960, W.W. Rostow wrote a book, The Stages of Economic Growth, in which he likened a nation's progress in the, in the economy as an aeroplane ride, and that once the economy has gone through that process of takeoff, the social, financial, and political institutions must be transformed so that growth becomes the normal condition. There's only one trouble with this, is that unlike any other plane ride, this one apparently is never allowed to land, but must fly endlessly, ever-growing, into the sunset of mass consumerism. And so now we have economies that are financially, socially, and politically addicted to endless growth. Now, any one of these elements of the story can seem absurd on its own, but spin them together and you've got the beginnings of a powerful narrative. In fact, in 1947, a small group of economists, including Friedrich Hayek and uh, Milton Friedman, met in a little Swiss village called Mont Pelerin, April 1947, almost exactly 70 years ago to the day. And they began to spin together what they called the neoliberal story of economics. Their story had to wait decades in the wings. But in the 1980s, when Reagan and Thatcher came to power, it took to the international stage, and it's refused to leave ever since. And so we're told that economics works when we have the market which is efficient, so we should give it free reign. That finance is infallible, so trust in its ways. Trade is win-win, so open your borders. And the state, it's incompetent, so don't let it meddle. These were the stars of the neoliberal story. And other characters are not required on stage, but let's check, check them out anyway. The household, well, that's domestic, so leave it to the women. The commons are tragic, sell them off. Society, well, there's no such thing. So you could ignore it. Earth is inexhaustible, so take all you want. And power, that's irrelevant, so let's not mention it. This neoliberal story has taken us to the brink of collapse. Today, many millions of people in countries rich and poor cannot meet their most essential needs, from nutritious food to decent housing to health care to political voice. And yet we've already pushed and overshot beyond the planet's life support systems, from climate change to land conversion to massive biodiversity loss. Today we have an economy that is divisive in generating massive inequality 
and degenerative in destroying the sources of Earth's life-giving systems on which it ultimately depends. And that is why we need a new economic story. And of course, that new story has to come with new pictures. So let's start afresh and ask ourselves what the economy is for. Economics literally means, from the ancient Greek, household management. And it couldn't be more relevant today. At the planetary scale, we desperately need to manage our household so that we meet the needs of all within the means of this one fragile planet. What is the economic mindset that gives us the best chance of doing that? Well, first, let's take a new look at what the economy is. It's the sphere of life in which we produce and distribute the goods and services that meet our needs and wants. And it's embedded in society that enables it to function and within the living world through which solar energy flows like a river. And the economy continually draws in Earth's living matter and materials and spews out its waste. So right there is an essential question. How big can the through-flow of the economy be before it starts to disrupt the very life-giving systems of Earth on which it fundamentally depends? But also the economy is not just made up of the market and the state, that 20th century ideological boxing match. It also houses the household, where it begins every day with the unpaid care of parents. And it includes the commons, where people meet in local communities or global communities online and produce goods and services that they value without the role of money. So it's a much richer starting picture of the economy. And finance needs to flow in order to make all of that happen. The state also has a particularly important role of ensuring that all of those forms of provisioning can flourish. Because I know I wouldn't want to live in an economy that lacked any one of them. The market, the state, the household, and the commons are all valuable ways of producing goods and services that we need. And they often work best when they work together. If that's what the 21st century picture of the economy looks like, who are we? Forget rational economic man. We better think of ourselves as social, adaptable humans. Rather than being merely self-interested, we're socially reciprocating. We cooperate each other. And we punish people when they don't do that. Rather than having fixed preferences, we have fluid values that can be triggered many times a day, shaping and shifting our wants and needs. Instead of isolated, we're interdependent and behave sometimes like herds. That's seen in the stock market for sure. Rather than calculating, we're usually approximating, following the rule of thumb. And rather than having dominion over nature, we're deeply embedded in the web of life. With this far richer picture we can begin to paint a new portrait of humanity. Indeed, it's the most important portrait that will be commissioned in the 21st century, mattering not just to economists, but to all of us, because it tells us who we think we are. What of how the economy works? Forget Newtonian ideas of mechanical equilibrium. It's time to get savvy with systems and the dynamic feedback loops that continually spiral up and down. And their emergent properties can be seen in the patterns of the world, from the murmurations of starlings to the boom and bust of stock markets, from the, to the rise of the 1% to the collapse of ecosystems. And just like all of these patterns in the world, the economy is ever-evolving. Now, that's an empowering thought, because it means that each one of us can play a part in its evolution. We could even turn out to be the butterflies that kick off the winds of change. And it means also, for economists, it's time for a metaphorical career change. Don't be a Charlie Chaplin. Be like Josephine Baker instead. Don't try to control the levers of the economy because they don't exist. Put down your spanner and pick up some gardening tools. Dig into the economic garden. 
And if you think that sounds like laissez-faire, I'd say you've never done a hard day's of work in the garden. Because any true plantsman knows that gardening involves pruning, cutting, grafting, weeding, and watering the plants so that they grow and mature. And if we want to be garden designers in the economic system, then we have to ask, how do we want that garden to be designed? Well, let's make it distributive and regenerative by design. Distributive, meaning that the value that's generated is shared far more generously with all of those who helped create it. Think of community-owned energy systems and community-owned housing. Think of employee-owned companies and ethical supply chains in which those whose work creates the value gain from the value that's fully generated. Think of community currencies, complementary currencies, that circulate value far more widely within the communities that use them. Think of the creative commons, where valuable ideas can be used, shared, and improved without end. All of these are everyday examples of distributive design, and they prove that it's already happening. As for regenerative design, it's time to say farewell to the last 200 years of industrial activity through its linear process, which takes Earth's materials, makes them into stuff, uses them for a while, and then throws them away. That linear process runs against life and is degrading the sources on which we depend. It's time for a regenerative economy that instead of using Earth's processes up, uses Earth's materials again and again and again, so that we work with, not against, the cyclical processes of life. And if we put regenerative and distributive design at the heart of a new economy, that is a transformative long-term idea. And it brings us back to rethinking the future of economic growth. Growth is a natural phase, a healthy phase in every living process. But from your children's feet to the Amazon forest, nothing grows forever. And if it tried to, it would destroy the system on which it depends. So there's something odd in economics that we assume that an economy can grow without end, without even questioning whether in the process it might disrupt the very society or living world on which it depends. The trouble is, today's economies need to grow, whether or not that makes us thrive. And what we need are economies that make us thrive, whether or not they grow. We need to become agnostic about growth, so that in creating economies that are regenerative and distributive, GDP can go up or down or hover still in response to the transformation of the economy that we want. Overcoming our addiction to this growth, financial, political, and social addiction, is going to be the 21st century rehab that we now need to face. How could we create financial systems that can embrace growth without extracting it How could political leaders create economies that thrive without fearing getting kicked out of the G20 family photo by the next emerging powerhouse? And how can we all come to believe that the best form of therapy is not retail therapy? None of these addictions are insurmountable, but they all deserve far more innovative economic attention than they're currently getting. So that's why I think it's time for a new economic story with a new cast starring Earth, which is life-giving, so let's respect her boundaries. Society is foundational, so let's nurture its connections. The household is core, so let's value its contribution. The market is powerful, so we must embed it wisely. The commons, well, they're creative. Let's unleash their potential. The state, it's essential, so let's make it accountable. As for finance, it's in service, so make it serve society. Business is innovative, so let's give it purpose. Trade, well, it's double-edged, so we must make it fair. And power, it's pervasive, 
So let's check its abuse. With this new narrative, and of course pictures to accompany it, I believe we can create a new economic story for the 21st century, one in which we have a far greater chance of meeting the needs of all within the means of this planet. And that's why I believe that the most powerful tool in economics is not money or algebra, it's a pencil. Because with a pencil, you can redraw the world. Thank you very much. very much, Kate. That was an absolutely fantastic talk. And also, it's a very fantastic book as well. I highly recommend it to everyone in the audience. A few questions from me, and then we can open it up to the audience. I think what you're trying to do at the heart of the book is to unpick economic orthodoxy, to challenge the theories of luminary economists, people like Simon Kuznets. Um, and I agree with a lot of what you say, but, but it also comes at a time of in- increasing populist, almost paranoia around experts, um, and including economists who are experts. Um, and you can see the likes of the Bank of England, for example. Their public standing has deteriorated, especially post-Brexit, and some of their predictions have, haven't come to pass. So I'm wondering, how do we achieve a healthy level of scepticism um, without descending into a rejection of experts and, and ec- economic academia? So how do we make sure we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater when we're kind of critically analysing economic theories? Well... This baby has been sitting in the bathwater for about 250 years. So the baby is very old and the bathwater is very cold. I think it's time to think for ourselves in the 21st century. If any of these economists were alive today, Adam Smith, John Maynard Keynes, they would be saying, what are you doing? We came up with these pictures, with these ideas a century ago. We lived in a completely different world from the one you have. Do you have no ideas of your own? they really would be the first to be rewriting economics. And they'd be shocked that we're still plowing through their text saying, are you a Marxist, are you a Keynesian, are you an Austrian economist? Let's get into the 21st century. As for the ideas that I'm putting forward here, I think if you speak to people who say, oh, I'm not an economist, I don't understand that, ask them what they value in life. They value healthcare and an education. They value living in a healthy living world where they can enjoy clean air. They value being in a society where it's not extremely unequal that everybody has enough. That's an economy that's regenerative and distributive by design. So I think this speaks very much to the kinds of ideas that people want to see in practice. It actually takes it away, I hope, from the high theory that we think, oh, I don't understand economics because I can't do the equations. What I want to do is undress those equations and show that they're based on some deeply outdated ideas that were even probably wrong in the first place. So when it comes to actual policy changes, and you put a few ideas in your book, you toy with... Some around taxation, for example. Um, you mentioned land value tax and the merits of that. You talk about how we might potentially shift from taxation on labour, like workers, to capital and machinery, partly as a way of dealing with um, oncoming automation. Um, but as I'm sure you've seen this week, there's been uh, an, a backlash against a, a mod- rather modest change that the Chancellor tried to make around national insurance. So we tried to increase national insurance by a couple of percentage points on the self-employed. So my question is, how do we make major changes to policy that can help tilt our economic axes in the ways way you want and we want um, if we can't manage more modest and progressive changes such as those which were touted earlier this week? Sometimes the, what seem like the modest and, uh, and the smallest changes actually can be hardest because we're stuck in an old form of thinking. I think of it as a long spectrum. 
I ask somebody to say, for example, tell me how you talk about the economy and talk about the living world, I'll tell you what your job is. And if they're talking about tweaking the tax rate, they're probably policymaker facing and trying to change a bill or a policy right now. If they're talking living world and regenerative and distributive economy, <clears throat> they're taking the long term. All of these roles are valuable. We shouldn't compete with each other, but we have to recognize their different spaces. Donella Meadows, who's one of the greatest uh, systems thinkers uh, who died some years ago, she had a brilliant way of talking about leverage points for intervening in the economic system. And she said one of the lowest points of leverage is tweaking the tax rate. You're merely just turning a tiny tap of how much stuff is thrown, flowing through. Right at the other end of the spectrum, one of the highest leverage points for transforming the economy is transforming the paradigm the way we think about and describe the economy. So I want to jump up to there. We need people at all those levels. But just because we're stuck facing Brexit, stuck post-financial crisis, shouldn't mean our thinking should be stuck there too. We also need to look at this whole century ahead. Otherwise, our grandchildren would say, did you get your head so stuck in Brexit you couldn't see the long term? Did you stop thinking about climate change? Did you stop thinking about broader society? We need to do both. Absolutely. Um, I think... You make some really, really powerful, brilliant arguments uh, around the importance of language and narratives um, in your book. For example, you, you refer to the term tax relief, and this very word relief implying that tax is necessarily a burden. Um, you also mentioned free trade as another example of that. Um, so what can social ecological change makers, advocates for change, what can they do to wrestle back control of language? How do we gain mastery over it again? So it's such an important point, I'd say the, the thinker George Lakoff in the U.S. has been one of the primary thinkers helping us see the power of verbal framing. It was those guys in Mont Pelerin 70 years ago, almost to the day, who started to master the use of language, who talked about free market and freedom, and who realized that if you talk about tax relief, who could be against that? Never, ever argue against tax relief, because you're merely repeating the frame that taking off tax as a relief. You have to find an alternative frame. So you have to argue, for example, for tax justice. What I want to do is to complement George Lakoff's work. He did verbal framing, checking we're aware of the words we're using. What I want to do is the other side of the story and check on the pictures that we're using because you can't write a new story if you're using the old pictures. So it's the pictures we draw and the words we use. These frame the metaphors of the world that we say we live in. We make up the world we live in through our metaphors, visual and verbal. We should take great care of the ones we use. So at the back here. I'm Mark Thompson. Thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, you listed the principles of neoliberalism, free trade, open borders, trusting finance, that kind of thing, which pretty much is a mirror of the principles of the European Union. Um, would you say that having left the European Union now, Britain's in a stronger position to be able to change its economic model? I didn't realise we had left the European Union. <laughs> <laughs> Quickly before we get on to that, this gentleman here. Hi, Jimmy Greer from ACCA. Uh, thanks very much for a great talk. Um, I have a quick question on uh, the framing and things like, well, your opinion on, let's say, planetary boundaries and how that kind of uh, framing has gone down and is being picked up. And um, in contrast, something like the SDGs. And, um, you know, I see quite a lot of um, companies taking the SDGs um, really fast and sort of moving into that space very quickly. Planetary boundaries, they find very difficult, and there's a space there which I think um, needs to be bridged. So if the UK does indeed continue on its path of leaving the European Union, great question. Do we have more space to um, 
create a new economic story for ourselves. Certainly that is the, the silver lining that many people who didn't want to leave the European Union, I've heard, saying to themselves, look, at least this gives us a chance to start creating an economy that we want. My fear is that when you listen to the way the government's talking and thinking and the, the pressure it's under to show that it's doing the right thing, I worry that it's actually reverting back into old metrics of proof of success. So re-obsessing with GDP growth, talking less about uh, is it going to be sustainable? Are we hearing less about you know, sustainable? Are they talking about creating regenerative economic model or just competition, free trade, Britain being an efficient economy? So I worry that it's actually regressing into old thinking rather than leaping into new thinking. But certainly for those of us who want to see new thinking and say, it looks like we're on this path, this is the time to create a new economic story of the country we could create and not just herd back into a very old-fashioned, out-of-date one. Mm. On the question about planetary boundaries, the donut diagram that I showed, the outside of that that I called an ecological ceiling is indeed the system of planetary boundaries. So these are the nine critical Earth system processes that um, Earth system scientists believe are holding our planet in the extraordinarily benevolent and stable state in which all societies have thrived. And if we kick ourselves over those planetary boundaries, we kick ourselves into unknown terrain in which it's very unlikely that 10, 11 billion people can thrive well. So I think the planetary boundaries framing is incredibly powerful. In fact, to be honest, it was a personal uh, turn-on-the-road moment for me. When I first saw that diagram, I had a bolt of adrenaline through me. And it was as if I'd seen uh, natural scientists saying to economists, look, if you won't draw the Earth around the economy... We're going to do it for you. In fact, we've done it, and we've written it in our own metrics. And it was when I saw that diagram, I actually suddenly thought, perhaps I will call myself an economist after all, because I never wanted to. I was too embarrassed of that word. Mm. Perhaps being an economist can be about household planetary management, and this is the beginning of a framework for it. And, it, and it's seeing that maybe then draw the inside of the donut, which is the social foundation. So no one should fall below the social minimum, but we can't push beyond the planetary maximum, and that's a new space. I think it's actually more powerful than the sustainable development goals. It's deeply compatible with it in many ways, but I think it's more ambitious. I'll tell you an inside story there. The planetary boundaries were actually part of the framing for the sustainable development goals at Rio plus 20. But when the finance ministers of some of the world's most powerful countries got involved, they saw these planetary boundaries and they said, what is that? I see that standing in the way of my economic growth. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of planetary boundaries was removed because of this addiction to growth. We don't let ourselves consider these new ideas because we are so addicted to growth and anything that seems to challenge it can't be on the table. Uh, Jeremy Kaplan, I'm a fellow of the RSA. Uh, thank you for that. I applaud the intent, but where I fear we may hit a, a roadblock is where economics meets behavioural economics, where we go from the rational to the emotional. So when you get down to the individual level, we may all love and believe in living in a cleaner space and a more you know, energy-efficient place. For us and our near neighbours and our friends and family but we're less bothered about the next person. And, and the best example of that actually comes back to the national insurance example. How many people breathed a sigh of relief when this extra money that needed to be found wasn't coming from them because they found another target and another victim? So it's, it's okay as long as it's somebody else that's paying. That's the emotional rather than the rational response at the economic level, individual level. Yeah, My name is Wendell Alas. I've been a fellow of the um, RSA. Um, 
I was at Sussex in the 60s um, when we were studying Cairn Cross and Samuelson and so on. I went over into doing environmental work because it was so much broader. Um, we are also, you know, you talk about planetary boundaries. When I wrote a book in the 90s, we were three times over the limit. Um, so it's not just a question that we might be over the limit now. We're probably many, many times over the limit of the carrying capacity of the, of the Earth. My question really is, how do you achieve the peasants' revolt? Because um, it, just where I, I went, went into planning and law... Um, uh, at the local level, I mean, you know, the antics of Downing Street and the White House in particular are very entertaining, but in terms of everyday life from all of us, what's going on in local government, the starvation of local government, of, of any funding, is what determines your environment and mine, your kids' school, the litter pick, you know, the dozen and one things that are going on in your locality. But um, my, my answer, question to you really is, how do you instigate this change? I mean, it's a massive, you know, I suppose it's, a, you know, a million pieces in a mosaic, but um, I, I don't know where you start. So, there are those of us who've been trying to start it for some time. One of the most exciting things that's happening at the moment is that the economic students themselves are rebelling. The students in economics departments all around the world, the very people who've dedicated years of their life and an awful lot of money to studying this subject are calling for change because they know that what they're being taught is not equipping them for the future that's coming. And their network... So I studied 25 years ago, and I walked away from economics frustrated. And I didn't, I didn't have the gumption that they have to find others who were equally as frustrated as me, but I also didn't have the internet. They are networked internationally and realising that they're not alone, and they've created a powerful movement, and I think it's one of the most exciting movements. But where do we start... We must always start here and now, otherwise we'll, we'll never begin, we'll never be ready. So for me, I'm starting here today with you. But I'm also working with students in schools. I'm teaching companies about these ideas. I've been presenting this donut concept to Fortune 500 companies for five years and talking to them about how that transforms their business model. I'm working with some urban designers in Stockholm who are creating what they say, they're going to create a new district of Stockholm and they want to make it a donut district. They want to make it a district of Stockholm that meets the needs of all its residents within the means of the planet. So there are designers and urban designers and companies who are already putting these ideas into practice. Regenerative design is alive and well. What we need is economic redesign to catch up with where the front edge is. And I'll say one more thing on that. We can get overwhelmed by the current problems, the current challenges, and the current narrative of policy. But again, Donella Modo, she said, if you want to change a paradigm, speak to that paradigm. Provide the new language. Because politicians will never speak in a new language if we don't start showing that we're speaking in it first. Use the new wording. Don't just use critique the old. Be propositional and come with the new. That's why I'm putting up these new ideas of what the economy is and is for, so that we can start to be progressive. And, and each of us ask, what in my daily life can I do about where I work or where I bank my money or how I volunteer or how I vote, how I shop, eat and travel? All of these things start to change the paradigm because it's an evolving front edge of change. On the question about behavior and do we only care about ourselves and not about the next, again, I think this partly comes back to the narratives that government give us. And I think at the moment in this country, we're being told that many things aren't affordable because there's not enough money to go around. We can't afford to fix the NHS. You know, it's not true. 
Government seems to find money to bail banks out, to invest in Trident, when it has its own big projects. So the idea of money, money isn't even created that way. It's not as if the, how much money is there in the pot and sh- is there any left to take out. Money can be created for what we value, whether it's long-term investment in a regenerative future or a far more distributive society and a fantastic NHS. So we mustn't fall prey to the language that government frames it in, competing people off one against the other. That's what happens when this country starts rejecting desperate people, migrating away and fleeing war, because we say we haven't got enough room for you because there's not enough money to go around. So I think it comes back to Matthew's question about reframing it and understanding, naturally, Britain is the fifth richest country in the world. How can we not have enough money to meet our basic needs? We need to think of a new language to describe this and make people see and help people to see, actually, I will thrive best if I live in a thriving community. I don't want to be surrounded by people who don't have enough because then I'll be gating myself in. I don't want to live in a gated community. I want to live in an open society. Yes, amen. A couple more questions. Graham Winyard, I I wonder if we're being a little over-pessimistic Surely the peasants are already revolting, and in many ways the various populist movements are a reflection of the current economic systems to look after households, commons, ways of life, things that people hold dear. It's just they've been offered the wrong solutions. But but today I feel rather inspired by seeing a solution. So thank you. Yeah, um, my name's Jeremy Fox. I'm a fellow here. Uh, a couple of things. One correction: uh, we may be the fifth largest economy in the world, but we're not the fifth richest on a per capita basis. Not by a long way. Actually, we're quite a way down, even by European standards. The question I want to ask really, really revolves around what you've been saying, um, but it's looking at it from a slightly different perspective, and it's this: that in the Western world, and in most of the world nowadays, we live in what's called a capitalist society, a neoliberal one, as I think you've already pointed out. And one of its fundamental features is something you've already touched on, which is that it's dependent on people buying things they don't need. That's what the fashion industry is about. That's what changing our cars I think we're the fastest in Europe, aren't we, to change our cars, according to some news which came out recently, and so on and so forth. And because the system itself, as it's it's framed at the moment, is dependent upon that, and that means our livelihoods are dependent upon that waste, it's very hard to see a way in which we're going to change. I don't say it's impossible. On the contrary, I'd like to see it. But I think it's a very difficult problem and that it, it's not one that's available to solution by economists or, I suspect, not even by politicians. I think we need a fundamental rethinking of the capitalist system and that goes way beyond this country. It's an international question. I don't know what the answer is, but I just toss it out to you. Okay. Well, I might connect those two, two <coughs> questions together, actually, because I think one of the reasons why we're... As you say, we're caught in this process of buying things we don't need. Much of that comes from the advertising industry, right? That continually tells us, as the wonderful John Berger, who died earlier this year, said, advertising always tells us one proposition, which is that we will transform ourselves by buying something more. What if the same advertising space in public were actually dedicated to something completely different, dedicated to what Graham's talking about? 
Go and do something in the commons. What, how could you contribute to the commons? What ideas could you share online? Is there a common space that you could be part of? Many of the people I know who have the most light in their eyes are volunteering in some part of their life in some, for something they believe in, part of a global commons. Many people leave the workspace and go home and code until 3 o'clock in the morning because they love fixing patches on some sort of online software for free because they get a huge status and sense of recognition out of being part of this commons. So... I really like the fact that Graham says we're being too pessimistic here. And actually, there's a lot of revolt going on. There's a lot of positive new spaces of the economy in the household and in the commons where we can actually find that we thrive and we're so much happier rather than always going off for this retail therapy. But at the moment, the economic model is also hooked on ensuring that um, more and more jobs are created because otherwise we get the long unemployment queue. So governments, we're politically hooked on growth because governments fear the long unemployment queue. John Maynard Keynes thought that by now, we'd actually, by, the, by say 2030, that we'd have overcome our economic problems and we'd all be working maybe 15 hours only a week. Not quite where we are. Uh, I'd probably guess that nearly everybody in this room feels overworked. We're doing too much work. And so there's lots of propositions about creating shorter working weeks, having flexible time. Again, it seems... Uh, illusory if you only look at it in the current frame of the economy. But if you take this extended view and look at what we truly value, and much of that comes from our free time now, it is a transformation that could be made. Terence Bendix, University of Southampton. I'm afraid I'm one of your sceptics. I really can't uh, buy what you say. Let me give one small example. You've been talking about shopping and people being drugged to buy things by advertising. Go back to the 18th century. Look at how the wealthy spent their money. They built enormous houses. They filled them with um, um, furniture and objects and that sort of thing. There was virtually no marketing then. There was no advertising. They did it because their peers were doing it and because... Thanks to their land ownership, they had money and they aspired after all sorts of things. You talk about aspiration in your book, but nothing you've said today convinces me that the aspirations of all those people in Africa and all those people in India and in Asia who want houses, who want goods... um, Nothing is going to change them. Your your talk is not going to change them. They are going to have their future. And what kind of future it is, I'm certainly not sure. But I don't see any relationship between the future that you're sketching and the one that is emerging thanks thanks to the aspirations of people in Africa and Asia and India. Sorry, Sorry to disagree. I'm delighted you disagree. I'd love to answer that straight away. The people in Africa and Asia and India, as you say, absolutely should have aspirations. Why should they not want to lead lives where their children go to school and live beyond the age of five, are healthy, they have homes, they have opportunity and dignity and community in their lives, which is what we all want. What I know of people who I know in those countries is that they already see the environmental damage of trying to do it like we've done it. So Britain, going through its uh, industrial revolution, a lot of that pollution just went up the sky. We're too small to change the world. And a lot of the damage was exported to the colonies overseas. What's happening today in China, where people go to work, children go to school with a face mask on, 
We're in India, where communities, a whole communities are leaving their state because there's no water, because the water table's been drained dry. They're already seeing the tension between having an aspiration that's based on industrializing in a degenerative way and how that actually sucks out the life source of the world that we depend upon. And I think they are coming through with a far smarter way of thinking and understanding that human health and planetary health are utterly dependent because they understand water shortage, pollution, deforestation and degradation in a much more intimate way than many, many people in this country do because our lives are so disconnected from the natural resources on which we depend. So I have more hope for the mindset that actually is emerging in those countries. Brilliant. And gentleman here. Thank you. Um, hello, my name is Vincent Neat. Um, I'm, I'm not an economist, uh, and uh, I'm definitely far too ignorant to, to be sceptical. There were two things that, that you, um, you talked about that I'd just like your clarifications on, uh, and this is my very weak understanding of economics coming out. Uh, one, is, one was to do with um, the, the crash in 2008, uh, and, and somehow that being evidence that there's no such thing as equilibrium, which I didn't. I always assumed that, that we were out of equilibrium and what the crash was was us going back into equilibrium and, and, and people were kind of realising that actually the, that the rise was just a, 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 an unequ, unequilibrium myth or something. And the other part was where you talked about um, uh, the, 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 the endless desire to grow and I think that the, the, the basic reason why we're so addicted to growth and need to be addicted to growth is because we are so in debt. And the only way we can ever get into a position where we can pay the debt off is by continuing to grow the economy. So I'd really appreciate comments about those two sort of aspects, please. Yes, you could say, oh, the financial system, it seems like there was a bubble and it needed to burst to bring us back to reality. But, but even if there was a bubble... Just the starting point of equilibrium thinking is not a smart metaphor for understanding how economies move because they're full of people and people continually respond to each other. It's a self-reflexivity. So we are, because markets are shaped by how people are guessing what the next people are going to do, it's inherently a dynamic system. It's much more like a murmuration of starlings that's constantly moving with emerging properties and patterns than some sort of system that goes back to rest and returns to an equilibrium point. It sometimes sounds like it's a good metaphor, but actually most uh, scientists and many economists now realise it's not a smart metaphor. and We're going we're to do a lot better if we jump ship and go for evolutionary economics. Mm. On the point about debt, debt is one of the reasons why we're addicted to growth. I'm interested that you said we need to be addicted to growth because I worry if we, if we need to be addicted to growth. I mean, anything that's addicted to growing... Cancer is addicted to growing. Anything that's addicted to growing is ultimately going to destroy the system on which it depends. Nothing can grow forever without destroying the system on which it depends or destroying itself. So we really need to think smartly about the role that we give to growth in the world and the justifications that we continually make for it and why we become so indebted in the first place and if we ever can see ourselves getting out of that. I think we have a system actually that's built on continually debt indebtedness because we create money by issuing debt. That's a factor of the way that money is currently designed. It doesn't have to be designed that way, but we've designed it in such a way that the economy continually needs to grow to pay it off. Thank you. That was um, very inspiring, especially for somebody my generation. I'm currently a student at the LSE, and so um, while there's a few people who are maybe thinking along this progressive path, definitely frustrated with the mainstream, still conventional ways of thinking neoliberal, 
just wondering if you could, um, you mentioned a few, but the key players who are already pushing this kind of agenda forward um, would be great to hear. Thank you, Kate. Uh, it's Robin Stafford. Uh, you mentioned the, some of your engagement with the business community, and my sense is they're probably further ahead than people think because they see both the threats to their existing models and the opportunities. I'm wondering more about the political community because my sense is they're both scared to actually pick up these issues and sadly all too often ignorant. I wonder whether you had any sense of whether there is take-up and if so, where that take-up with your kinds of ideas might be coming from. Okay. Um, well, so among the students, there's a wonderful movement. Uh, Rethink Economics is one of the biggest student movements in this country that's taking on economic thought and calling for pluralism in education. Among companies, there are lots of different movements, but say, for example, the B Corp movement um, is putting at the heart of the way companies design, giving them purpose beyond just fiduciary return of investment for, for shareholders, but embedding in the, the DNA of a company a finan uh, economic or uh, social or environmental purpose that is important in terms of the returns as well as the financial. That can transform the purpose of what business is for. Um, I'd say in communities, there are the creative commons, I mean, the online digital commons and the, and the idea of licensing, not just patenting and copywriting any idea, but now putting it in the commons. Many academic journals now require that if you want to have your article published, it has to go into the commons. So there's a wonderful movement that's rather than saying, why on earth would you do that, put something in the commons, the question is flipped. Why would you not put this in the commons? How can you justify not putting this commons, especially if it's publicly funded? How can you justify patenting and privatizing that knowledge from public money? Surely anything that's funded by public money should go into public commons space. So there's a lots of wonderful different places. I'd say one person who's really inspired me is a biomimicry expert called Janine Benyus, who talks about how we can learn from nature's 8.3 billion years of innovation and understand how nature has created thriving systems and how we can better mimic those in our own financial, economic, and social systems. So there are wonderful thinkers out there. We just need to bring their ideas into the heart of economics, like at the London School of Economics. Uh, here's all power to you. On Robin's question, yes, there are many companies who absolutely see the impacts, because if you're a clothing seller and you're buying cotton, from around the world, and suddenly your cotton supply chain has gone because the water's run out um, in the Aral Sea, and there's no more cotton coming. Your supply chain's utterly disrupted. If you're making beer in Africa and your water tables drain dry, your beer factory can't produce anything. If you're making trainers and your workers around the world are revolting, or indeed if you're making smartphones or iPhones and the workers are... are showing deep disruption, this is going to disrupt your business. So many businesses understand that they cannot export the problems. They have to take responsibility for the whole supply chain. The political system, I agree with you, Robert, it's harder. I think politicians are judged by their words often as much as their actions and so are terrified about using words which will be whipped up into the press and twisted around and flipped back at them. There are almost no politicians in the world who will ever talk about an economy that's not dependent upon growth. It's taken as a given so this is a long journey, and I think as citizens and people working in this kind of space, it's just a responsibility to start talking this language, to dare to step into that space, to make it seem normal and feasible and optimistic and start creating another way of thinking. I don't have a smarter insight that. Maybe you do, and I'd love to hear it. Just, just on Robin's point about business community getting this, um, 
how, how willing are corporates to fundamentally change their business models? Because they may be looking at their supply chains and saying, OK, where do we get the minerals from to make an iPhone, for example? But if you take a look at Apple, Apple fundamentally exists by churning out huge amounts of phones and, and relying on people to buy into those and buy into the brand. Same with clothing. You have clothing manufacturers and sellers, H&M and others, who maybe tout the circular economy credentials, but they still ultimately rely on people buying huge amounts of clothing. And I wondered whether we're seeing enough change, whether they're fundamentally changing their business models in the way that's necessary to arrive at this donut economics model that we, we want to see. So I'd say when it comes to companies, I've been fascinated by the response that I've seen from them. When I present the idea of the donut and what would it mean to be a brand that's a donut brand, that your very core business practices are helping to meet the needs and rights of all within the means of the planet. And I've seen, I'd say, five levels of response. Just quickly, the bottom one is do nothing. It's not you know, the business of business is business. That's not my problem. Until it's law, I'm going to do nothing. That doesn't really work so well anymore, especially when companies realize they're impacted by these problems themselves. The next step up is to do what pays. Quite cynically, if it, if it gives me a green brand or perhaps cutting my carbon, it's cost efficient as well, I'll do what pays in the short-term narrow sense. That's a first step, but it's by far from enough. The next step up would be to say, well, we'll do our fair share. How much does this nation need to cut its carbon emissions by? Well, we'll do, our, we'll do the same within our company. It's okay because you're beginning to reflect science, but as anyone who's known, who's gone out for a meal with a lot of friends and been left holding the bill and everyone's chipped in their fair share, it doesn't add up, right? It always falls short. So you don't want to be left holding that planetary bill. Also, fair share, doing your fair share can very quickly flip into, I want to take my fair share. How much carbon can I emit? How much pollution can I cause? And that's not the mentality. It's not a transformative mentality. So we go from do nothing, do what pays, do your fair share. Then we get more ambitious. Do no harm. This is called mission zero. We're going to produce as much renewable energy as we use in this building. We'll emit no dirty wastewater from our factory. That's starting to be transformative. But it's like putting a glass ceiling on our ambition to do no harm. Why not burst through that ceiling and say, I'm actually going to do good. We're going to be generous. And as Janine Benyus, the biomimicry expert, would say, business shouldn't ask how much value can we extract from this process, but rather how many benefits can we layer into it so we can give some away. That's what B Corps are start starting to do. That's what people working in the creative commons are starting to do. It's a transformative mindset. Some businesses leap up there. Others are taking far, far too long to creep up that ladder. Brilliant. Um, I think that's pretty much all we have time for. Um, it's been... Amazing having you here, Kate, with us. Brilliant questions from the audience as well. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, please do join me in giving a big hand to Kate. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.